morning. morning. Haven't seen you guys in a while. Where have you been? (laughs) Hey, uh, I'll talk a little bit later about my sabbatical, but I want to introduce our storyteller for the week. Uh, We share the same namesake, uh, Pete Baird. I don't know him very well, uh, though I know many of you do. He's been around this church. He and his wife, Lynn, have been here. They've been faithful in serving and caring, and especially uh, have, he has especially a heart for uh, global engagement, things that are happening outside of our country. Really appreciate him for that. And another interesting thing about Pete is that he ties his own flies. So Pete, come on up and tell us a story. Good morning. My instructions today were to talk fast because my story runs a little more than the five to seven specified minutes. I'd like to share a little bit about my family and my religious background, the mentor in my life, and my transition trip between graduation from college and beginning employment at Boeing. I grew up in Waltham, Massachusetts, in the era of guys like Johnny Pesky, Bobby Doerr, Dom DiMaggio, and Ted Williams. My only sibling was a brother, 18 years older than me. Our house and one other were the only two at the end of the street, and both backed up to a 250-acre open municipal forest area known as Prospect Hill Park established back in 1893. There was a fire lookout tower at its peak, and many hours of my youth were spent roaming its many trails and woodlands. My dad was an avid bird hunter and fisherman, and supplementing the daytime walks to a local fishing pond was the promise of an overnight camping trip once I reached the age of 10. My mom was a wonderful cook, and was delighted by the challenge of my ravenous appetite as a boy. Life was good. Then one day I awoke to much commotion in the house to find that my dad had died that night. It was around that time that my mom began taking me to the Sunday school at the Christian Science Church, where I memorized the names and order of the books of the Bible and struggled with understanding of the Trinity, God three in one. I remained in Sunday school there till age 20, which is the custom of that church. Upon graduating from college and taking up residence in Seattle as a bachelor, I spent very little time inside a church. Three plus years later, I returned to Waltham to marry the girl I met at age 13 on my paper route, and now known as Lynn. We were married in a pretty stone church named Covenant Congregational, which was adjacent to our childhood neighborhood, suggestively known as Piety Corner. Following our journey back to Seattle, we were baptized at the downtown Covenant Church 
later attended the Newport Covenant Church, and finally, having been a fence walker for nearly 40 years, I completely accepted Christ as my Savior, and we joined the Mercer Island Church. The man I considered to be my mentor was first known to me as my Sunday school teacher. His name was Henry Wallace Clark, a World War II veteran who walked with a limp. Our class of all boys tended to have rebellious tendencies, and when challenged about our conduct and the threat of his departure as our teacher, we changed our ways. Outside of the church environment, a major element of my spare time was committed to earning money. My dad had put aside $2,000 toward my college education. The remaining financial commitment was up to me. Beginning at age 11 and for the next five years, a paper route, shoveling snow, and yard jobs were my major sources of income. It was 49 cents collected weekly. That was the cost of the daily and Sunday paper. Once I became the owner of a driver's license, other opportunities opened up. A summer camp counselor was my job at age 16, and after graduation from high school, I was once again on the prowl for a hopefully better paying job before the start of college. It was here again that Wallace, he went by his middle name, entered my life. My mom contacted him and I was offered a job working as a rod man for the Middlesex County Engineers, a firm that did road surveys. Wallace worked as a crew chief. The summer job served me for the next four years one incident that profoundly shaped my attitude about a person's character occurred when a new hire with a very foul mouth joined the crew. Wallace wasted no time in quickly informing him that such language was not tolerated on that crew. He cleaned up his act, but nevertheless didn't last very long. Wallace also subcontracted work for a local instrumentation company and had a machine shop in his basement. This was another learning experience and financial opportunity for me. Later, when located in Seattle, Wallace was one of my regular contacts whenever I returned to New England. He remained one of my treasures and inspirations as to how life should be lived. During the summer of 55, prior to graduating from college, a friend of my dad's offered me the opportunity to purchase a 1952 MGTD, an English two-seater roadster. I jumped at the opportunity. In June of the following year, with my job offer letter in hand, I began my coast-to-coast -coast trip that would launch my career at Boeing. With the exception of a wardrobe trunk to follow, I loaded the possessions I perceived as needed for the trip. A Waltham Bank checking account, checkbook, uh, what cash I had, clothing changes, a toilet kit, a 22 rifle, a hunting knife, and a sleeping bag, plus other miscellany 
that the MG passenger seat could hold. My one planned stop was at my brother's home just outside Detroit. Otherwise, my plan was to throw out my sleeping bag in a farmer's field or other remote location of convenience to spend the night, then press onward. This I did. Once west of the Mississippi, it was all new to me. When the billboards and Burma shave signs started promoting wall drugs and the reptile farms, I knew those had to become stop-offs. After watching rattlesnakes being milked of their venom and many other creepy crawly creatures, my sleeping bag that night seemed to be filled with writhing snakes. The following morning, I turned southwest toward the eastern entrance to Yellowstone Park. With cash about gone, I was told that my Waltham bank check was not going to get me into the park. My best alternative was a trip back about 40 miles where a given man might be willing to cash a check. But upon arriving there, respectively early that morning, I was told that he had gone to a neighboring town and would not be back until 4 p.m. I waited, and thanks to my Boeing letter confirming employment, he consented to cashing a check for $20. That was enough to pay for entry to the park and gas on into Seattle. I made the trip with top down all the way and only ducking raindrops when I got to Stevens Pass. My destination of the Seattle downtown YMCA and a bed for the night and following week was achieved before nightfall that day. There's more to this tale and my absence of cash before receiving my first paycheck from Boeing. But time is running short. The point I want to make is that these and many other experiences, and with the help of others placed in my path by the Lord, I have experienced a very rewarding life. It is through him that I have come this far, and each day more, that I treat as a blessing. Thank you. Moving on to the scripture reading, it's from the book of 2 Timothy. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 through 14, the New American Standard Bible. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me 
in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. The word of the Lord. Pete, thanks for that story. Um, it's amazing to hear how lives are lived. We all get to live one of them. So uh, it's good to have another perspective. Uh, I've been away for a little bit. For about uh, three weeks, I was out of town. And then the last week, I've just been hanging out uh, um, here, hiding in plain sight. But I was in San Francisco with my uh, sister. I have two sisters who live there, one in proper San Francisco. So I was staying with her. She works for a company called Slack. And uh, her husband works for a, a little company called Twitter. And uh, they go off to work. And it'd be about 7.30, 8 in the morning. They're gone. And then they wouldn't get home till about 7.30 or 8 in the evening. And so I'd just be at home, and most of the days I spent sort of heads down working on things. And uh, they'd come home, and I'd open my mouth to say hi, and frogs would come out of my throat. Because I hadn't talked the whole day. Uh, and I didn't even realize it. And that's kind of what this feels like, a re-entry. Uh, I need a little bit of warm-up time and re-entry grace from you all. Uh, today we are starting a new series that we're calling Things That Matter. Uh, Second Timothy represents Paul's last written words that we have from his life. And uh, theologians and scholars, they think that right after he wrote this letter, he died. And so, and Paul knew that, and there's a, there's a way that there's kind of a deathbed confession kind of happening here in Second Timothy. These are Paul's final words to the living as one who is about to depart. And so he's not going to waste his syllables on things that don't matter. And he's looking Timothy square in the eyes and saying, Timothy, I love you. I feel responsible uh, for your faith. And I want you to do well. I want you to do right by uh, our Lord Jesus and here are the few things that I want you to not forget, the things that I want you to care about. And that's what we're going to look at for the next four weeks, are some things that really, really matter. The title of the first sermon today is called, Your Treasure. Your Treasure. And we're looking at verses 5 to 14 in the first chapter. The main idea 
the main framework for this whole series, I'm going to say it this way, is only some things end up being important in life. Only some things matter. Not everything matters. All of the things that we're sort of into on a day-to-day basis, most of the, those things don't matter. A friend of mine, he just got a brand new car. I went over to see it, and I loved it. It's gorgeous. And he asked me if I want to drive it, and I said, heck no. I don't need that kind of pressure in my life. What if something happens to it? And I remember driving my older sister's brand new car, and I made a U-turn on a New York City street, and I cut the turn a little bit too wide, and the sidewalk you know, was a little too close, and I scraped the side of the alloy aluminum wheels on the edge of the sidewalk, right where there's a sewer thing happening, and the metal just scraped, gouged out her brand new wheels. And I remember that instantly as I was invited to drive his car. <laughs> and uh, I said, no way, I'm not going to do that. He said, Peter, it's just a thing. It doesn't matter. I know that's true, but it would have really mattered for months and months if something had happened. (laughs) And you know this, and I say this because I know that it rings true for you. I don't have to prove it to you. You know that most things don't matter. Most things don't have meaning. They're not important. I have a couple of articles today, and uh, I've been thinking about this joke, and I've, I've tested it out with Susie, and I've been thinking about it. It's a good joke. The joke goes like this. You guys were so amazing at taking care of my family while I was away. You guys took turns bringing meals to my family while I was gone, a contribution I wouldn't have made anyway, so that was a total bonus. <laughs> and, uh, and you also took turns picking up my girls at their school down in Renton, bringing them up. Uh, once or twice a week. That was amazing. That was my job, and you did that for me. In fact, you guys took such good care of my family. They didn't even know I was gone half the time. You even took turns sitting in the living room reading articles for five hours a day. (laughs) That was a joke. I thought I was the cold one. I think the room is a little bit cold. (laughs) Uh, Martin Seligman. Uh, He's a professor of psychology at UPenn, and uh, he's the author of a new book called Homo Prospectus. And uh, he wrote a little piece in the New York Times uh, talking about the main theme of the book. And the title of this article that he wrote in the New York Times is called, We Aren't Built to Live in the Moment. And the whole argument that he makes, uh, written with his colleagues, is that the brain's default mode of thinking is always directed towards the future. And whenever you take time to think about the past, they say, he says that you are actually snapping out of the default, making an exception by looking at the past. And as soon as you start thinking about the past, you can't help but project that into the future because your brain keeps wanting to think about the future. That's the default that it keeps snapping back to. And when people talk about being in the moment, you know, there's really no way to be purely in the moment because we take the moment and we project it into the future. And that's the whole point of this book, that we as human beings 
live mostly in the future. And he actually uses a modern-day example. He says, our brains are kind of like Google search engines. You know how when you start typing a search term in Google, it starts searching as soon as you make your first keystroke? And that way, by the time you hit enter, it's already got all the results for you. It's basically instantaneous. And he says, our brains do exactly the same thing. We're always prospecting into the future. And so whatever it is we're thinking about that's in the present or that is in the past, we're using that automatically. Every little bit of information we get in real time, we're formulating some sort of picture about the future. Now, um, I... And bringing this article up here, because for me, I don't know what it is for you, but for me, uh, I've not sort of stayed on a uh, one-line trajectory in my Christian faith. I, as many of you know, I went through a season of a few years where I really was feeling and thinking like an atheist. I just found it hard to believe first in God's goodness and then in the existence of God. And I started relating more to people who didn't believe that God exists. And it was during that season I began to do, I think, some of my most honest thinking about whether the Christian claims are true or not. Is the church something that is based on truth? Or is it kind of like we're all in cahoots to perpetuate a lie because we're actually just pragmatists at heart and it kind of works. It gets the job done. It keeps society sort of tamped down and moral. You know, it keeps us sort of good and humming along. It helps us control people. I mean, what is it about the Christian faith? And so articles like this I appreciate. And for me, what, this is what it does. It reminds me of Bible verses. It's evidence for me. You know what the Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes that God has set eternity in our hearts. We're always free from time, you know? And that's what this uh, uh, psychologist and the two neurologists that he wrote the book with is telling us, that we don't really know how to be present here in this here life as we know it. That there is some way that we all instinctively know that life is really about something that's to come. Not that this is insignificant, not that this isn't important, but it's important because of the way it contributes to what the Bible calls eternity, what today's passage names as eternity. There's a kind of eternal reality that is yet to come. And somehow, this time situation that we're dwelling in, we know this is a temporary placeholder. That this is sort of the doorway to something. We know this. And the reason we are that way is because God has set eternity in our hearts. You know, guys like Martin and others, they can write a thousand research papers and books with hundreds of thousands, millions of words, and then the Bible boils it down into these, you know, seven little words. God has set eternity in our hearts. This is what I understand as the drive in my search for meaning. Why do we as human beings care about meaning? 
You know, if we really are the byproducts of a materialistic process called evolution, and that's all there is, if really we just have evolved from uh, particulates, you know, we're just things. The car that I saw yesterday and me, maybe we're just the same thing. We're just things. Then why do I keep thinking about the future? Why does my brain work that way? I think it's because God has said eternity in my heart. And I care about meaning. And when you start thinking about what meaning is, you begin to understand that the things that have meaning are the things that will remain beyond our lifetime. The things that have meaning are the things that are eternal. And when human beings talk about meaning, we're not talking about things that are just like special or something, things that create a feeling or things that, you know, uh, have some memories attached. That's not what meaning is about. When, when you keep thinking about what meaning is, you begin to boil it down to this one word, eternity. Whatever you ultimately deem as meaningful are the things that will remain. The Bible, Jesus himself said, fruit that remains. You think about, I think about, the biological imperative, the impulse to procreate. You know, it's everywhere. Cloud storage solutions I was reading about this week. Why do you want to keep things forever? You know, we think it's silly that we talk about heaven as being up there. But then we can't help but talk about, you know, data retention in terms of the cloud. Because we kind of think about things above us as things that are beyond us, things that will have meaning beyond our personal, you know, finite existence. You know, or uh, who was it? Was it uh, some famous guy? I can't think of right now. He's the one who said, you know, uh, everything is about sex except sex. Sex is about power. You know, what is behind that statement? What is this imperative to procreate? That's us trying to find meaning in our terminal existence, trying to create existence beyond our own. That's us tapping into the eternity in our hearts. That's why the Bible says the resurrection is such a powerful evidence and occurrence because it testifies to the truth that you and I all know on some level that we were made for eternity. And the Bible's basic teaching is if you view the lens, if you view life through the lens of eternity, the Bible and everything else makes sense. Um, so I went away for three weeks to San Francisco and as I was leaving, I left on a Sunday after, uh, East, I left uh, on a Sunday after service. I preached my sermon here, and I got home, and got, I packed, and I was ready to go. And I felt this feeling I wasn't feeling until that moment. You know, I, my view, my perspective started changing. And I felt this compulsion, this impulse to say things to my family members. You know, what would you say as you were leaving your family, young family, vulnerable family for three weeks? I said, I love you. I said, I will miss you. I promised them that I will make all of the trouble and hassle of my leaving worthwhile for them, for all of us. Somehow it will benefit everybody. 
I said to the girls, I said, please listen to mom. Please help mom, help each other. I said, please be safe. And then finally I said, I will return. Now these words couldn't capture what I was feeling. What I was feeling was this. I know that I'm sort of a big deal to my family. I'm, I'm the dad. You know, I matter to them, and I play a role in their lives. And I felt this sense of clarity about that role, that my life wasn't about me. You know, that I'm really just a steward, that all of the self-care and the ways that I try to grow personally and all of that, uh, that's just a means to an end, and the end was them. I want them to be cared for through me. And in moments like that, and there are other moments too, when you realize it's not about you. You know, you come to a place in your life when you say, you know, I want to have life insurance, not for me. Life insurance is never for you, you know this. It's for those beyond you. And when we feel that, I think that's us knowing what meaning really is, that it's about eternity, things that are beyond us. And the same thing is happening here with Paul. Things are spilling out of Paul to Timothy. You know, Paul understands as big of a deal as he was to the formation of the early church, it's not about him. But there's a role that he's been asked to play, and he wants to make sure the job gets done beyond his own lifetime. And so he's passing on truths to Timothy. And the main idea of today's passage is this that you can't give what you don't have. You know, and so there's a way that Paul understands that he was gifted with something. It's something that Paul calls your treasure. And Paul took care to, to care for this treasure that was in him, and he wants to remind Timothy that, Timothy, you have a treasure in you as well. It's been passed on to you. It was in your grandmother, it was in your mother, and now it's in you. And it's your job to recognize it, to nurture it, to guard it. You, this, this thing that's in you, it's not about you, it's not for you, it's for something beyond you. And you have to be a good steward. You have to take care of it so that you can pass it on. That's where true meaning is found. Now look at verse uh, 11 and 12. For which, Paul's talking about himself, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Here is Paul caring for his apostleship because he understands himself to be a vessel, as a means. Verse 12, for this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. And here is Paul communicating that he nurtures his personal experience of the gospel so that from a place of personal testimony from a place of sincerity, from a place of personal devotion and experience, from that place, he can, with passion and integrity and identification, preach the gospel. And he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, it's the same, true, same thing is true of you. The gospel, this treasure, is not something that's outside of you. It's not some system of belief that you get to just teach 
but it's something that has to be uh, birthed in you. It has to grow inside of you. And you nurture and you grapple with it. And then from that place of taking full ownership, that from that personal place, from that place you preach the gospel. Christianity at its core is powerless as a movement or as a worldview or philosophy or institution without the driving engine of personal encounter, of personal benefit, personally lived faith. Christianity at its core, at its core, purest form, is emotional, existential, relational, and personal. The key question that matters most is Jesus coming to you and asking the question that he asked of Peter, but who do you say that I am? No, never mind what other people think. Never mind what you've been telling other people. Never mind what you uh, think you should say. But who do you say that I am? You personally, what have you experienced? What have you seen? Why is faith in me the defining characteristic of your life? Why am I your treasure? Why isn't it enough that the Spirit is just moving out there? Why does the Spirit have to move in here, in me, in you? This is the only way that it works. This is the way God designed it. Uh, Let's see how this plays out a little from uh, Paul's lips to Timothy's ministry philosophy. Verse 5, Paul says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you. What does Paul mean by sincere faith? It's not just something that uh, Timothy has memorized, but he has personalized it. Faith in Christ isn't a statement of faith. No, but it's a personal belief. For I am mindful of the sincere faith, where is it? Within you, which first dwelt. Now, this word dwelt is such a beautiful word. And imagine your non-Christian coworkers and your neighbors and family members saw you, and this is the word that came to their lips when they tried to describe your relationship with Christ. They're like, yeah, she believes in Jesus. But it seems to me like Jesus lives in her. That there is a kind of Jesus which dwells in her. I mean, once, once the people around you see that and recognize that about you, you don't need to do evangelism. You're doing it. Sincere faith that dwells within you. Grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is where? In you as well. And so Paul's here to say, your faith, unless at its core remains your faith, you are powerless to be effective in the world with that faith. It doesn't matter how smart you are and how competent you are, you know, uh, it doesn't matter how articulate you are, it doesn't matter how good you are. 
the foundation of Christianity is a personally lived, indwelt faith. And so this is a challenge for me. You know, I don't want to be a Christian if it's not dwelling in me. I want people, other people, not me. I want other people to be the first to say, hey, there's some living in you. That's real. That's true for you. You believe this. You live this. You care about this. You give to this. That's evident. This is an indwelt faith. And I guess my personal belief is until it's really dwelling in me, it's not worth it. What is it worth to anyone? It's certainly not worth anything to me. If it's just an opinion that I hold and not a conviction that holds me, who cares? I certainly shouldn't be a pastor doing that. But, you know, in the New Testament church, there are no real pastors. We're all just followers of Christ. Your faith, what is it worth to anyone if it's not dwelling in you? In verse 6, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you. I want you to understand and appreciate Paul's emphasis here. Paul is saying, Timothy, this is what really, really matters. I'm going to die. I can't speak to you after I'm gone. I want to make sure, this is me double-checking, triple-checking, you have the things that are important. This is the first thing I want to talk to you about, that this faith that we are all dying for, the faith that we claim to care about, we actually care about it. And it needs to be in you. Remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God. Not of you, but in you. And then verse 14 Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. It's so powerful for me to read these words from that angle. And then verse 12, for this reason I also suffer these things. There is a way that Paul is making personal investment. It's costing him everything to Believe this faith that is in him, that he's always nurturing and guarding, and now he's trying to pass on. Some of the implications of this uh, that I've been saying that I want to underscore again is you cannot be a Christian without personal investment and interest and experience in the faith you claim to believe. Christianity, by definition, is personal. It doesn't matter what you think. Think is just, you know, optional. You can let it go. I change my mind all the time. But what level, then, are we talking about for Christianity to be personal, to be dwelling in you. And you know, uh, I know that you know I read all the stuff. I just like it. You know, I'll admit to that. I do like learning about lots of different kinds of things. But you know what I'm really doing is I'm sort of, I just got this sort of like itch in my brain, in my heart. And I want to know that Christianity is true. 
You know, in some ways, I'm never going to stop being that atheist trying to figure out for myself if Christianity is really reliable, if it's historical, if it somehow can integrate with all the other bodies of disciplines and bodies of truth that we know are true. Like we know that there's lots of truths in the, that the scientific community offers. Somehow, God's truth and that stuff integrates to a cohesive whole. And I know this, so I'm just sort of like reading it, looking for evidence, looking for clues to see how the puzzles fit together. And what I'm doing for me, even if I wasn't a pastor, I will do this probably for the rest of my life, is to have these aha moments. Oh my goodness, I see it, I get it. That makes sense. So I read about how the human brain is always prospecting for the future. And then I don't just say, oh, that's interesting and move on. I say, wait a minute, wait a minute. That reminds me of what the Bible says about the future, that most of our life we haven't lived yet because it's, it's ahead of us because God has said eternity in our hearts and God is a spirit and he's eternal. He's not bound by time. Maybe it is true that even though I live in a body that somehow originally I was intended to live in eternity. And so that's where my mind goes with that. And that's not just a brain exercise. That's me trying to live out my faith from within. I'm grasping at some kind of integrity to my faith. And I really do believe we all should do some version of that. We should all struggle and wrestle with the Christian faith. We should all be working to integrate what we see and hear and know. We can't be unthinking, compartmentalized people who are happy to suspend reality as soon as we come into the church. That doesn't work. You can't have a Christian faith that's based on yesterday's evidence. You need evidence for today. You need something to be fresh. Somehow, your faith is also looking into the future along with you. You need to be maintaining your confidence so that it's not just eroded confidence from the past. Why today do you still believe in Christ? Uh, I'm going to probably talk about this metaphor um, a few times, you know, a new sport that I've gotten into that my family has gotten into is rock climbing over the last month. And uh, I've sort of started, started obsessing about it. I went every day this past week and I'm trying to learn, I'm trying to grow, I'm take some classes and try to figure it out. But it's fascinating for me to see the metaphor of life and of, you know, eternal life on that wall and just looking for footing some reliable little peg that I can put my whole weight on. And that's what Christianity is for me. I'm looking for that next little peg. Because I know I'm supposed to be up there. That's the goal. But how do I get there? What can I grab? What can I rest my weight on? What can hold me up? And so I find myself experimenting with my faith in my mind and in life, experimenting with prayer, testing out God's promises. Are they true? Is he reliable? What does his faithfulness mean to me in this very real season right now? Um, Scott Jones, 
author, he says this, at the heart of Christianity is what is sometimes called the scandal of particularity. Why does the creator of a seemingly infinite and expansive universe tie our redemption to a child who many undoubtedly thought was, a, was born a bastard to Jewish refugees who was later executed in the backwater of the Roman Empire? Why is the fate of every tribe, tongue, and nation bound up with a Palestinian Jew who, apart from the resurrection, would have gone down as one of the nameless thousands that the Roman Empire crucified without a story to tell? You ever think about that? Like, I think this is one of the main arguments against Christianity is if God is all-powerful and he is all-love, why doesn't he just one fell swoop, just save everybody? Why does God choose this incredibly meandering, inefficient, vulnerable pathway to save all of humanity? You know, why does God make our faith narrative so particular? Think about that. Why doesn't God just do it? I just watched the movie The Shack, and I read the book years ago. And uh, this is one of the themes is, the arguments that the father makes. Why doesn't God just, with a wave of his wand, save the universe? I certainly would, he thinks. And yet God says, no, 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 we're going to go the inefficient route. We're going to take thousands of years, and we're going to choose one vulnerable little girl. And we're going to make sure that she gives birth to a bastard son, surrounded by scandal. And then we're going to have them almost die. He's going to escape certain death. And then he's actually going to die. And there's going to be nothing to show off about his life. Son of a carpenter, crucified on a Roman cross for treason. And then all of his so-called followers are going to scatter and abandon him, proving that he was a nothing and a nobody. And then God says, cling to that. Put your foot, the weight of your whole body on that little peg. And I promise you, you'll be held up. Why that nonsense? And I think, because my life is nonsense. You know, I live my life not in one glorious sweep. My life is lived in the particular. My life is made of flesh and blood. I need not just a God above in the cloud. I need a God here with me on earth. I need the incarnation of God reaching me where I dwell. I need him not just out there, but in me. Little, old, messy, inefficient, meandering me. Wait, that Peter guy, is he still preaching? I thought he was an atheist. What happened to him? Yeah, he's still preaching somehow. <laughs> somehow, something's holding him up. Well, how? Who's holding him up? Jesus. He went down and became a man, lived this tragic life because Peter's tragic. And the tragic can reach the tragic. Clay can reach clay. And as I experience God meeting me where I'm at, in a, with a particular scandalous faith. 
that matches the scandal and particularity of my existence, then and only then can I be saved. I be saved. And this is the inefficient but thorough way in which God chooses to work. The power of the gospel is not in the you shoulds or the you need, but it's in the I did and the I need. From that place of testimony is birth real treasure. And this is the message that Paul has for Timothy. Timothy, you have a treasure in you, in you. Nurture that thing. Because without that, there is no power to the gospel. There's no engine in that vehicle. Unless you personally believe in the Christ as the Son of God who died for your sins, your preaching is without power. Um, Just the random things. Let me go through these quick. National Geographic, I just read this article this week. It was about lies. I had bookmarked it months, a couple of months ago, but I finally got to it. Uh, Learned that uh, most of us lie most of the time. That's what the study shows. Most human beings lie most of the time. We rarely, if ever, tell pure truths. Even the true things that we don't even think about are laced with some lie. In tone, and body language, there's a way that we are sort of hedging our bets when we speak all the time. That's what the article basically says. And it says that the group that actually lies the most are 13 to (laughs) 17-year-olds. And they mostly lie to obtain personal independence and freedom. But in general, most people lie to cover up personal transgressions. So again, I read an article like this, and it's evidence for me about the gospel. It makes me say, oh, even if we didn't believe in God, even if we didn't believe in the concept of sin, It's still there. The evidence shows that we feel a sense of guilt and shame. Whether you believe in God or not, whether you're an atheist or not, every single human being, you know, with with exceptions, extreme cases, feel guilt. And we lie most of the time to cover up personal transgressions or to feel free. So that's evidence, you know, to me, that we need the gospel. Uh, Harvard's Moral Psychology Lab uh, says this, what we find in very young children and across cultures is that people don't want harm to go unpunished. This is the case even if an action is unintended. For example, after a teenager unknowingly ran over two children who were hiding in a leaf pile in 2014, killing them both, Listen, 94% of people who were queried about this believe that the driver, Cynthia, deserved imprisonment. Even though she didn't know. Even though it was just a pile of leaves. The pile of leaves was on the street where cars belong. And yet, they still believe, 94% believe she should be punished. And the article concludes, when we make moral judgments, the more primitive idea of you caused that you should suffer response never goes away. So we as a society can do away with the concept of sin. And yet, 
As a society, we still believe in punishing wrongdoers, even if the wrongdoing is a complete mistake. Even if it's an accident that's not their fault, we still believe for the sake of justice that we have to do something. Now, juxtapose these two things. We lie all the time to cover personal transgressions, and we believe in you cause that you should suffer. We believe this. Regardless of your faith in Christ, this tells me, again, that even if I were to become an atheist and give up my Christian faith, I still need cleansing. What can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash away, what can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is what the, Christ, what the Christian faith claims. But if you're not a Christian, how do your sins go away? I'll tell you how. We do it by lying and we do it by punishing other people. We feel cleansed if we can punish other people. So those are a couple of alternatives, but there has to be an alternative if it's not the blood of Christ. Here's the gospel that Paul lays out for Timothy. Verse 9 and 10. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Do you believe this? Do you believe this gospel? I want to invite you to figure this out for yourself. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And how did God accomplish this gospel? Verse 7, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Verse 14, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Now, not uh, many of you probably have done this, and this was my first time doing it. I did a little word study on the idea of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. You know, there's three main categories that I've discovered that the Holy Spirit's function is in the Bible. Number one is he's called the Spirit of Truth. Number two, he's called a counselor. He's there to give us counsel, to offer guidance and comfort. But... One of the more fundamental functions of, the, of God, the Holy Spirit, in our hearts, in our life, is reminding us, t- teaching us, and actually creating in us a sense of God's love for us. This is the main job of the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, we cannot know that God loves us. Because God's love for us in Christ is so foreign. It's so alien. The concept of grace is so foreign, but even more than that, it's insulting to us. This idea that we need grace, that we actually need grace, is an indictment, and we don't like it. It means that we can't on our own, so we resist and fight grace. And it's the job of the Holy Spirit to uh, instill in us a faith, in God's love for us. The love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, the spirit of what the Bible calls sonship. Galatians 4, 6. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, that's daddy, 
Father. It's through the Holy Spirit we come to understand that we are children of God. Romans 8.15, you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Romans 5.5, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The Holy Spirit that Paul mentioned several times in today's passage, it's the treasure, it's the faith that's in us. It's us coming to grips with the reality that God the Father has poured out his love for us through God the Son. And now we know that love through the work and the presence, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit in us. And, you know, lots of things about the Christian faith is intellectual for me. It's rational. It makes sense. I can understand it on that argumentative level. And then I get to this idea of God's love. And I say, well, how does that happen? And that's when it flips and it becomes supernatural. It's the Holy Spirit in us that causes us to believe in the gospel, the treasure of God's love through Christ is the hope of glory. And this is our treasure, that God loves me, that God loves you. And from that wellsprings, uh, from that uh, springs life eternal, and we become salt and light to this world. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that uh, your love for us in Christ is not just a historical event. It's not just a set of beliefs out there that we uh, grasp at, but it really is the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. And this is really the treasure, your spirit in us that causes us to believe that we are sons, that we are daughters, that we are indeed loved without measure, loved without condition. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. No matter what things are unknown and unstable and are causing grief and pain or confusion in our life right now, it will all be okay. And that's not just us comforting ourselves with empty words, but that's the truth that we're working out. And so God, remind us today and every day that you love us and help us to live out of that love. And if there's any kind of testimony or evangelism, let it come from that personal place as we continue to work out our faith with fear and trembling. We thank you for your love for us, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.